Let's pray. Father, would you just take these moments and I ask that you would allow for your Holy Spirit to to speak through me the things that you that you want um, to be heard and, and remembered and that your word, like you say, will enter into hearts that are open and bring about the kind of transformation and the kind of hope that only you in a relationship with you can do. So God, speak, we pray. Um, we invite your presence, Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me begin by just uh, talking about a couple slogans or asking you to think of a couple. And uh, they're from ad campaigns. And so you might remember these. You may not. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you can put the tagline to them. And we, we talk about being multi-generational in this church and bringing people together around leadership, worship, and service. So these taglines are going to be a little multi-generational. Cracker Jacks. Can you remember what the tagline was? What? Okay, and there's another one. The more you eat, the more you want. Lay's potato chips. Bet you can't eat just one. There you go. Nike. Yeah, just do it. A new perfume by Sarah Jessica Parker called Covet. And some of you won't, you guys, I hope you don't know it. Um, I had to have it. What I find is interesting is each of those are speaking to desires, and, and basically desires that are, are somewhat hard to restrain, difficult to discipline. It's just, you know, it's that inner compulsion that goes towards what you want, and sometimes you just got to do it. You have to have it. We're, we're told in, in God's Word that we have been given desires, and, and those desires will direct our hearts towards certain ends. And what I want us to be thinking about this morning is our desires and where they're drawing us. Where are they drawing you? I don't really want you to be thinking about your person sitting next to you, okay? Or maybe your kids or something. But I want you to think about yourself this morning. Where are you being drawn? Years ago, a man named Augustine wrote a monumental classic called The City of God. It's based on God's words, the life of Jesus and his words, it was around 400 A.D. that Augustine wrote this. And he, in his work, the city of God, he divided mankind into two cities. Those who belong to the city of God are united, he said, by their love of God and of their love for one another. This idea that you can live on this earth and yet be a part of a heavenly city with a, a heart that's, that's beginning to be drawn and desires beginning to be drawn in love towards God and expressing those love towards others. And yet at the same time, those who belong to an earthly city, living here on this earth, can also be very much a part of this earth in loving themselves and so are not united in any real sense. And those desires cause wars. They divide us from one another. And they come through a very self-centered approach to life. They're basically headed in two different directions. Augustine writes these words, literally, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The earthly city glories in its own power, and the heavenly city is built on a disinterested yet compassionate love. 
The earthly city built on human depravity and weakness is doomed to conflict and everlasting death. The heavenly is built on love and faith and a righteous and omnipotent God lives in peace and can never pass away. God called Israel to become citizens of the heavenly, to build that city. And he says the majority chose the earthly. Today, God calls the church, you and me, to become citizens of the heavenly. The church is to be, in a sense, an outpost of this heavenly city with our kind of citizen papers here that are from heaven as we live here on earth. But just like Israel, because you go to a church or people are going to a church, that does not mean that you are necessarily a part of that heavenly city. It does not necessarily mean that through you are being birthed heavenly desires. What's interesting as we look at this chapter in Micah, it's the second oracle. It's the oracle of doom. It's not what I call a real feel-good chapter, okay? So I just want to warn you on that. But in it, Micah announces to those people who were really the church of his day, the Old Testament religious, spiritually looked, people looked at them as the spiritually drawn ones. He is basically announcing that those who have succeeded in advance in the earthly city are about to lose their share in the heavenly city. Okay? He'd be basically staying here today and saying, you know, although some of you, as you are advancing in this earth and the things of this earth, you need to be careful because as you make your advance and you are succeeding and moving forward, it may be that you are losing or have lost that heavenly city. Jesus said it this way. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then he makes this very interesting statement for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to really see where your desires are and where your heart is, just look at what you treasure, what your affections are set on. Where's your heart? Where's it heading? What direction are your desires taking you? is what this chapter is all about when we come to chapter 2 of Micah. And in, as we begin in these first two verses, I want to share with you the issue that is at hand that he's addressing. In verses 1 and 2, he says there's an issue, and the issue, he says, is your desire. It's the word that we call covetousness. In fact, when you go back, as we talked about last week, Micah chapter 1, Micah said you have something that you need to deal with. You religiously church-oriented Old Testament Jews of Micah's time. You, you guys have something to deal with. And that is that your heart is full of rebellion and sin. Literally in verse 5, he says, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression and because of sins of the house of Israel. So he's general in chapter 1. So he sets it up so that in chapter 2, he becomes very specific. And so verse 2, you see what he says. He says, woe. The woe here is this idea not only of sorrow, but it's the kind of woe that a person would express standing at a funeral. It's that kind of anguish of the heart. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. 
And I really want you to pay attention to that, that line. It is in their power to do it. There's something that you need to watch as we go through this book of Micah, as we begin to understand this message. There is a, a sense that each one of us have some power, a measure of power, of free will, if you want to put it that way, that we can exercise. They covet fields and they seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Micah specifies the crime, and he says it has both the social, one that is oriented towards other people, and a theological, one that's oriented towards God. There's a commentator named Bruce Waltke who writes, Socially powerful rich landlords in Israel behave unethically by seizing the land and destroying the homes of fellow Israelites who are unable to defend their rightful possessions. He's making a statement here that what's happening socially within the community, what's happening within the cities that people are living in, what's happening in this place that God wanted among the Israelites to show this incomparable, uncommon God who is full of love, who has a, a trinity, a, 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 these persons in perfect community, he wanted Israel to reflect that. So he brought Moses out of Egypt and he brought the people, the children of Israel, so that they would um, come before him. He gave them laws. Those laws were not given so that they would actually just follow them and then be um, saved, so to speak. They were given to, to open up their eyes to what's going on in their heart. To expose their need of their heart. And, and not only were those laws then done to make a, a person aware and conscious of the covetousness in their own heart, but they were also given a whole bunch of Levitical laws. And those laws were given as an expression to how, as a community, to really love and serve one another, protect the rights of those who were being abused and exploited. To make sure that they wouldn't have people who would use their power to hurt one another. And Leviticus is interesting because it's just a book of, a, of, of legal laws. I was doing a, a, a wedding on Friday, and, and the wedding of, was of two attorneys. And it, there was a number of other attorneys there. And I spoke with a few of them, and one of them I actually sat next to at dinner. And I'm amazed at how attorneys kind of like law books. Have you ever seen those things? I, I couldn't imagine reading them. But there's, there is something there. And, and I really think our modern-day attorneys would really love Leviticus in that day. Because they are all about the laws and the need to create this kind of community that reflects the heart of God. And he says the issue here is the covetousness. Theologically, they've erred in thinking that the land belonged to the powerful instead of believing that it belonged to God. So they've been given these laws to protect one another, but they forgot that when they were brought into this land of promise, God parceled it out plot by plot to family to family, and it was to be an inheritance that would be passed on from, from year after years. And if they lost it every 50 years, they'd at least get it back. And the whole purpose of this community that God was setting up would be a place where everyone would be able to experience the, the love of God. And in order that, as they did, they could serve others. In some, he writes, they had broken both the spirit and the letter of the law, which instructed Israel both theologically and ethically about property rights. And instead of loving God and their fellow men, they loved only themselves. Look at verse 1. He said, it begins in their hearts as they lie in their bed, plotting and planning how to get what they want. 
And at the break of dawn, at dawn, when, when light comes, when, when you hope evil is away and darkness retreats, instead of justice and, and, and righteousness occurring, what happens instead is it says as soon as the light of dawn occurs, they carry out what they've plotted because they have the power to do it. Michael refers to this idea of personal power, this measure of power. And it forces you to raise the question this morning, what do you do with the personal power that God has given you. It may come in your position, it may come in your status, it may come in your natural abilities as a leader or in other ways. It may come in your money, which is an expression of power. What do you do? Verse 2 says, they use their power, they covet fields, they seize them, they want houses and take them. They use their power to defraud a man of their home and their inheritance. Exactly the opposite of the specific covenantal commitment they were told to follow in the book of Leviticus. In chapter 19, verse 13, for instance, it says, Do not defraud your neighbor and rob him. So here's the issue, very specific, and it's a hard issue. These people, God's people, covet. So let's just pause for a second and define what it means to covet. Abraham Lincoln, there's a story told of him. He was walking down the street and he had his two boys with him and his two boys were fighting one another. They were going at it and, and as he was walking along, a friend came along and they started talking. He says, what's up with your two boys? And he goes, it's uh, no different than what's happening in the whole world. He said, what's that? And he says, well, I've got three walnuts and they both want two. Covetousness is this, to want earnestly something you do not have, particularly Something belonging to another person. It means not, catch this, not to be satisfied what God has already given you. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, the, the 10th commandment of the 10 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or donkey, or Lamborghini, or Lexus, or BMW, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do you know, it is possible, and I think one of the reasons this 10th commandment is put in there, it is to expose our heart, expose the, the evil of our own heart. And what do we do with the power that we have? What happens with these desires, and what do we do with the expression of them? It's possible to believe that you're right with God as you look at the 10 commandments. You can go through all the 10 commandments, but something happens when you get to the 10th. You can say in your mind, after all, I worship the God of the Bible, like it says in the first few commandments, I don't worship idols. I, I, I go to you know, church and keep the Sabbath. I don't kill. I don't steal. I haven't committed adultery. I don't even lie. But it is hard to see anyone claiming to have, to have observed perfectly this Tenth Commandment. Because all of us are guilty at some point of desires that are disordered. At the root of coveting, it's desire. And so you have to ask yourself, this tenth one exposes the heart. Who hasn't wished they were better looking? Who hasn't wished that they were richer? Or more intelligent? Or more athletic? Who hasn't wished for that that isn't theirs? What God has made each and every one of us with is this insatiable desire. Ecclesiastes 
Chapter 3, verse 11 states that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's this idea, there's this capacity that is so great and so wonderful. And that capacity, in many ways, is our desire. And what's really interesting about the desire, that desire is made in such a way that only God in His fullness can fill it, but not just God, God and all community. See, God was putting us in relationship with Him in order that as we get in relationship with Him, we would see how the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have this incredible loving community where they serve one another, where they're not caught up with who's got higher status or power or anything like this. There's this incredible circle of love and expression of that love so that what He was hoping to create in Israel was this community that would express that to the world. And Micah comes along and he says, you're far from it. God comes along at times in the church And he may even be doing this today in our world, in our little nation of America, when you look at all through history. And he may be saying to us as people, and now again, don't look at the court system, don't look outside, just look only at yourself and your own response before God. Are you setting your desire in such a way that only He can fill it and as He begins to fill it and you begin to understand Him and you begin to understand His grace and His mercy, His love and you look at the cross and your undeservedness of of all that He gives to you, are you allowing that to fill you in such a way that through you it begins to express itself to others so that we are creating that kind of community that reflects Him? He's basically saying to us, It's not about the collection of stuff. The American proverb that you see on the bumper stickers that says that he who dies with the most toys wins is as far from the truth as New Orleans beating the Vikings this afternoon. Oh, okay, okay. He's saying no experience, no thing, not even a human relationship will satisfy this deep longing for God and true community. Because we have this tendency which is called sin, every one of us, to objectify everything in order to possess it. That is why he puts the first commandment up there that says, God should be the object of your affection. Lists all these things. He comes to the tenth commandment. Think about it. And why does he put the word covet or desire? Because if your desire is disordered and off, it will create all kinds of confusion, all the other stuff, lying, stealing, murdering, all those other things will come out of your heart. If the first is out of line. So he puts the first and the tenth. He he puts those to frame it because he says if your desire is after God, he becomes the object of your desire. You will then become filled with a very personal, loving being that should begin to express itself in personal, loving ways. And I'm not saying we do it perfectly. I'm saying that as we humble our hearts and we open our hearts and we ask God to move into our lives, he begins to, to, to show us our patterns of sin. And we become humbled by it and we begin to cry out and we say, God, please forgive me. And as you see those sins and those patterns and you see how the consequences hurt someone, you cry out and repent, you ask for forgiveness so you're in right relationship with one another. Because it's all about relationships. Really, folks, when you think about it, it's all about relationships, isn't it? As you are someday moments from your last breath It will be about relationships. Because life is not about possessing and being possessed or earning and being earned. It's not about consuming and being consumed or or having or being had or taking or being taken. It is about relationships and not possessions. 
It is about knowing and being known, about serving and being served. It's about loving and being loved. And when you, you are at those few moments at the very end of your life, what you will look back on and say, have they been rich? Have they been full? Are my treasures being built in this way in the lives of others? Do I use my personal power, whatever it is, to do good in another person's life? They plot and plan on their beds, thinking about how they can take and get more. And and the idea is the word of violence. They do it in a way that they grab hold of it, like two little boys wanting two walnuts each and fighting. And so the issue that I want to just bring before you in these two verses is what are you pursuing? What do you spend your mental energy on? What do you plot and plan for? Do you take time aside to just get quiet so that this God who loves you deeply can begin to possess your heart and order your affections in such a way that you begin to see your own sin? You begin to see where they're disordered. So you say, God, I can't do this. I recognize this is not something I can do. But please fill me, would you, with what you desire? How can you this week... Practical stuff. Plot and plan to really love your wife. Husbands. Now, now ladies, you should be going, yes. Can you imagine at night, your husband is kind of tossing and turning, and and he kind of wakes you up, and, and you know that what's going on in his mind is he's plotting and planning how he might love and serve you better. Because he knows it's all about relationship. And that's kind of cool. How, how about, wives, what you plot and plan? Are you, are you worried about the stuff? Are you thinking about all these things you can't control? But are you plotting and planning and how you might love more fully your husband? Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, are you planning how you might love your kids more? Kids, you have the same God. Are you plotting and planning in your own heart saying, God, how can you be more involved? I don't understand some of the things my parents are giving, but what does it mean for me to really love them? Is it worthwhile to plot and to spend time figuring out how to help the person at work near you who's hurting? Is it, is it worth plotting and planning with your, your spouse or a friend how to help that neighbor down the street who needs your help? Is it worth potting and planning as a church, spending time wrestling through what it means for us to become a community that reflects this God, that is about relationships, that relationships that love and serve and forgive and, and, and offer grace to one another, but actually take our personal power in such a way that we want to exert it with other believers to make an influence in the very community we live in? Well, Micah says they literally were grabbing and doing violence. And in the Old Testament, those two words often will go together. And underlying this truth is that they were not only taking the land away from some of their neighbors, but they were actually taking it away from God himself, who had parceled it out, dividing it plot by plot, family to family. And now God comes along in verses 3 through 5. And I cannot do justice, as I studied this, to share with you all the... the, um, poetic alliterations and and the movement of the Scripture and the structure of it. It reminds me when I studied back in seminary, Genesis chapter 1 through 12, this man who wrote this was brilliant, but he also was inspired by a very God who worked through him. But I used his gifts, like your gifts and my gifts. He used them. 
And here he is, he's, he's saying this God who, who is parceled out the land, and now you're grabbing it and taking it from people as if it's your own. You're not even asking God, what do I do with this? And, and is this even mine? In our culture, we have this sense that ambition is, ambition is always sanctified for God. We even have to ask God, what is, how far do you want me to go? How much is too much? And he basically says here in verses 3 through 5 that the issue of covetousness results in, if you don't watch it, is you take things that aren't yours and you, you break this commandment and your desires get disordered. The issue is consequences. You will experience consequences. He makes a change here in verses 1 through 2 where he's been accusing him. Now in verses 3 through 5, Micah points out God's response. Look at this, verse 3. He says, therefore, the Lord says... Verses 3 through 5 are a mirror of verses 1 through 2. He's again, this prophet's doing it poetically to, to grab hold of their attention. He's very eloquent. And if I were to sum up the words of verses 3 through 5, they would be this. The land you have taken so heartlessly and violently will be heartlessly and violently taken from you. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning and plotting disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourself. Verse 3. Just as the people were plotting and planning the disaster of their neighbors, Micah, in this very poetic way, says this is what God is doing towards you. He is plotting and planning disaster against those plotters and planners of evil. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. The idea is that you will have this yoke on your neck, and there's no way you can stand it up in arrogance. In that day, men will ridicule you. They'll taunt you with this mournful song. We're utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He signs our fields to traitors. This is exactly the words that they were hearing from the poor that they were taking the land from. They were taking the things that were not theirs from. They were violently grabbing hold of and exploiting and abusing and not using their power to help, but to grab what they could. These people, these poor, were crying out to God and they were saying to God, how can you allow these people to do it? They look spiritual, they go to church, they give lots of money, they do all this stuff, but in reality, when they stand before you, you know their heart. They're traitors. How do you allow them to do this, God? And he's saying to them, someday, you who are covetous and greedy and, and allowing those desires to go unchecked, to exploit others, to do violence against others, or to not step in when you can, and not to be involved in some way for good, he is basically saying, someday you're going to say the same thing. These rich landowners are going to go, God, where are you in this? How can you allow these covetousness? These, these people from the north of Syria who, who are looking at all the land they can get and who come through and they come through this land of yours and they, they take it away from us. These pagan traitors. And the idea is in verses 3 through 5 is the crime fits the punishment. It's the Old Testament law called Lexus Talionis. It's the whole idea of law of retribution. And the reason God gave the law of retribution, which is this idea, an eye for an eye, he put it up for fairness and justice. Here's the loving, incomparable, uncommon God once again stepping into culture and society. Because in that time, what would happen was that if an eye was injured by one, the other person would not only injure the eye, they would actually break, you know, do something like break his arm. And if the, that guy would come back and they'd retaliate. You know that kind of retaliation back and forth? Happens all the time. God stepped in and said, you know what? All we're going to do is we're going to put limits around this. The crime fits the punishment. And, and so if the eye is taken, only an eye can be taken in in mercy and love, he was stepping in and setting up a, a, a system of justice. 
And God in justice stands before these people and he says, I want to share with you folks that your covetousness, this desire that is disordered, that is unbridled, that's undisciplined, that keeps going after more and more and could care less about the people around you and you exploit them. And you who are supposed to be my example to the whole world, you need to understand that that you will have the same thing happen to you. Now, you can look at this and, and you can begin to wonder and say, I don't get this, God. How how can you do this? It could be that we have this sovereign, incredible God who has the ability to, through our actions, at the same time, actively be involved in the punishment. Isn't that amazing? This sovereign God who has the ability to allow our free will as we step out and we do what we want. He also uses the very actions that we have that are evil and He allows those actions to come to fruition. And through them, He seeks to get our attention. Through that pain. What's interesting is verse 5, he goes on and he says one other thing. Therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord divide the land by lot. They had this idea and understanding in the Old Testament that someday when, when the future would come, when the, the kingdom of God would come in its fullness, when, when heaven would descend on earth, when, when God would bring it about, all of Israel would sit before him in the assembly. And once again, like he did back then, when he gave the land of promise, he would give the land of heaven, in a sense, plot by plot, land by land to different people. And he's basically saying in verse 5 this. Not only will you lose your land... But with its additional loss, you will lose eternal life, the severest judgment of all. What Micah is saying is plain and simple. They will have no one represented in the future assembly of the Lord when he redistributes the lands once again. Which is this statement again. That if you are living in such a way, where as you look at your heart, if you can get honest about it, and you have unbridled, undisciplined desires. I'm not saying that you don't have this part of your heart, because we all do. But if you're living in such a way that you are not experiencing in, 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 in giving the grace of God to people, showing mercy to people, forgiving people, like Jesus said, if those expressions aren't also coming out of your heart, it does not show that you've been touched by the grace of God. Because... God is always saying to the people of Israel, remember, you were once slaves. Remember how I blessed you. Remember how I walked with you. Remember how I provided for you. Remember how you brought you into the land. Remember how I gave you all this promise. Now remember this because why? Because you are to turn around and do the same to anyone else in the same condition. And so he makes this statement, be really careful. Don't just claim that, that you know this God and then don't live anything that reflects his presence. Because a life unrepentant and untouched by the mercy and grace of God that fails to show any signs of this generosity and love towards others who are weak and vulnerable and poor and less fortunate, he just says, beware. And here's the work of God in our covetousness. There is the issue of our heart, it's the consequences, and here's what God is doing. He's seeking to awaken people to his incredible love. Now, you go, it's hard to see it in this, but it isn't if you really think about it. God loves us so much that he will step in with the truth in order to get our attention. He is patient. He waits. He, for 250 years, he's been speaking to these people the same message over and over and over again. He sends prophets. And look how they react. Verse 6. They say to him, 
do not prophesy. And their prophets say, do not prophesy, prophesy about these things. Their reaction to Micah is, shut up. We like the way we're living. And then disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do, my, my words, do not my words do good to those whose lives and ways are upright? From, from this whole sense of stop it, shut up, he moves to this sense of denial. Is God really angry? Would he really act this way towards us? Come on, we're upright. We go to church, we put a tithe in, we serve. Doesn't God's word say he does good to those who are doing good stuff? No, he says he does good to those who have received his grace. And as his grace begins to move into their hearts, they understand it is completely by grace. They begin to understand his mercy. They begin to move into those places where they reflect his patience and they forgive those who have hurt them. And, and they work and walk in a life that is, is incomparably uncommon to the people around them in the same way our God is. And God says, you become like enemies to me. That's what this next verse is, verse 8. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. The idea is this. They see a person who's poor. Their only possession is this robe. In that day, for some people, their only possession was a robe, and their robe was like a blanket. It was not just something they wore around to keep warm. It was something they put over them to keep warm at night when they slept, when it got cold. And he basically says, not only do you take these things, you even take away their heat. You're heartless. He goes on, he says, you take away homes from these women, which he's referring really to widows. You take away blessing from the children. You actually remove the land which is supposed to be returned after the sins of the consequences that have been done. They get returned back to the children. You've taken it away. You've left them nothing. And as a result, verse 10, he says, the words that you hear them, that you said to them, get up, go away, get off your land, you will hear this from this Nation coming in, and they will say, get up, go away, for this is not your resting place. It's defiled, it's ruined beyond all remedy. And then he says, verse 11, here's the kind of person you listen to. Mike is offended, because he's basically been given this message, and they won't listen. They say, shut up, they deny it, and they also live in the sense of delusion. Here's the delusion. If a liar or deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. Here's the person you'll listen to. The word prophet here is rare. It's not often used. It's more the idea of a person with a lot of wind, a lot of hot air. Not the wind of the Spirit. He says the only person they listen to is the one who says there's more wine and beer to increase your drunken delusion that God is really happy. You listen to the guy who says, keep partying on. Lots of beer, lots of wine. And yet they're in denial, they're deceived, and they're deluded. And that's why I go back and I say, let's not think about other people, think about ourselves. If God was speaking to you about your personal power, what you can do with it, do you, do you kind of go, you know, I'm, I'm going to church, I'm doing it. Or are you in this place where you're saying, God, more than anything in this world, I want to plot and plan and, and do all those things to pursue who you are and what you want with my life. God still is plotting and planning, probably even using this message in some people's lives. To just knock on your heart saying, 
please break the delusion. One of my deep desires as a, as a pastor of this body and what I, I want to see God do in the years to come in this community is to place us with this incredible desire that, that somehow the church reacts against in ways that are, I don't, it doesn't make sense. Whenever God starts moving by his spirit, somehow I believe um, our natural tendency, and Satan loves to use this, gets us to divide out. So years ago, when the church began to say, let's do social justice, let's move into these places that make a difference in our world, the evangelical church at that time very rightfully said, no, it's not about just doing works. It's really about making sure that your life is, is in right relationship with God and that you know him and it's about salvation, it's about eternity. You know what? They're both true. And all I want to say is we need to be a church that stands right on the middle that says it's all about God coming into people who recognize their need, who understand their sin, who humble themselves before God, who in the midst of that cry out to God and say, God, only you can save us. And now that you do, help us take our personal power, what we have, to do what you've done in our life. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. And I'm not even fully sure what it looks like for this body. But I have this real deep sense that God does, and He is working it out. And I just appeal to us to say, God, what's my part? What's my part?